Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. We're just going to enjoy uh, each other's company tonight and um, maybe be somewhat casual. I don't know about you, but I like to think that I learn at least one new thing every day. Actually, I feel kind of good when I learn that one thing. I say, well, at least the day wasn't a waste. I did learn something today. But maybe tonight, in the next few minutes, I might be able to show you something that maybe you have never seen before. But I want to start out. I, I heard this story the other day, and I was really intrigued by it. And since it's just you and I, and... I want to maybe dramatize it a little bit. It's about a man that is in the desert. Picture the Sahara Desert, 103 degrees. Well, it's probably even hotter there. And you, you're, you've left on a journey, and you've, you've tied all these water bottles around your neck so that you won't run out of water. And throughout the day, which leads to another day, your bottles gradually get emptied. You drink one and you go to another. And now you're out of water, you're very tired, you're physically drained, and you see a tree and right next to it a pump. Remember the old pumps that you go like this with? And you're, you're excited, you think that there's something there that will give you strength and uh, satisfy your thirst, so you go to it. And, and you start pumping, and with anticipation, and nothing comes out. And then you take a second, and you look, and on the spigot of the pump, there is a cup hanging by a wire. And in the cup, there's a note. And you think, well, that's a funny place to leave a note. And you take the note, and the note says, if you're thirsty... Look at your feet. Buried beneath your feet is a water bottle that is full of water. If you'll take that water bottle and prime the pump, you'll be able to get all the cold water that you want. And then it says, I know you'll be tempted to drink the water yourself in fear that it will not work. But let me tell you, if you'll do as I say, not only will you have more than enough, but those that come after you, when you replenish the bottle and bury it again, will be able to replenish their spirits by the water as well. And then it closed. Now I know you're thinking whether you should drink the bottle or not. And I thought to myself, what would I do? I've got water in my hand, I have no guarantee that there's water in the well. Would I have faith enough to give the thing that I need the most as seed faith to receive something that I really desperately need that will benefit me and others? And I have you think about that a little bit. Would you prime the pump or would you drink the water? Now, faith is a substance of things not seen, it's the evidence of things hoped for. So that's really a good portrayal of faith. It's giving something that you do have for something that you do not see. And faith is built upon the foundation of hope. Hope and faith are brother and sister, so to speak. We're saved by hope. We live by faith. Now, I, the Bible says, for you are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, what did he hope for? So, to start my message tonight, anything that you will get that is eternally long-lasting will take an investment on your part where you have to step out by faith. It's like the Shulamite woman. When Elijah said, came to her home, there's a famine that's going on, and and it's affected all of Israel, even outside of Israel. People are starving to death. 
There's been no rain for nearly three years. And he comes to the woman and he said, if you'll prepare me the last of your meal and the last of your oil, if you'll feed me first, God will take care of you. Here's the pump. Am I willing to give what little I have for a promise that's been given? Now, some of us would probably think this way, like the Shulamite, she says, well, I'm going to die whether I die today or if it doesn't work, I die tomorrow. Or if, it does, if I don't hold on to it, I'll die tomorrow. What's the difference if I die today? And that's what our walk with God is like. It's like we let go of our own perspective of a situation and see that perspective through God's eyes. Now, I, I had this, I was sitting down, I had a little bite to eat before I came to church, and this poem came to my mind, and I, I wrote it down because it's been a long time since I, I quoted this. And you'll remember it, it's really popular. It says, before every victory, there is a battle to fight. Before every sunrise, you must walk through the night. And before the graves burst open, on that resurrection morn, there's a hill to climb and a cross to be born. And so, with that in mind, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of those moments in our life where we make decisions that change the whole direction in which we're traveling. Now, we, we are going to continue on in our series. Brother John Matson is going to finish that last lesson next week. And uh, then we're going to enter into another series. But this is a little bit off of the series that we've been in tonight. It's sort of like an intermission. So... Have you, can you go back in your mind and think of a time in your life where you made a decision that changed the entire course of your entire life? A decision that was technically like a life-defining moment. For me, I, I, I thought about it. I can go back to a day in my life where I made a decision that changed the whole course of my life. It was in 1972. It was on a Friday night. I was a, a young man desperately in trouble and overwhelmed by some things that I had, had gotten involved in. And I had made a decision to take my life. I remember the night as though it was just a year ago or even two years ago. And I remember as I was... In the process of my plan, a thought came to my mind about the existence of God. Now, the thought would not have come to my mind, I am persuaded, if my parents had not taken me to church in our younger years. Me and my brother, we were compelled to go to church all through our, our growing up, whether it was Methodist or Lutheran or or for a little time Baptist, it was a habit. And even though they wouldn't go sometimes, they always made us go. Well, that led me on this night to remember a little bit of that upbringing. And I said, I wonder if there is a God. Now, here's the setup for a life-defining moment. I was at a crossroads in my, my, for destiny in my life. And I chose to go that night to challenge God to see if there, he was in reality there and if he was there, if he was concerned about me, even in my situation. And that night, something happened that changed my whole life. As I walked into a sanctuary of a blackened church on Friday night, there's no church on Friday night, especially not there, and I got permission from the pastor to go in, I went up to the altar in the dark, and I somewhat challenged God by saying these words. 
I said, God, if you're there, I need to know if you're, you are. And if you are there, I need to know if you love me. Now, you're, I had no idea of how God would uh, go about it. It was just sort of like an open challenge. And I remember as I was there at the front of the church, the pastor walked in, Pastor Frank Tamil. I picked the right church. Pastor Frank Tamil walked in as I was at the altar, and I was overcome that night with grief and tears and overwhelmed. And he came and put his arm around me in the dark, he never had me fill out a visitor's card, never asked me my name. He came and loved me. And that night, I realized that God showed himself to people through people. God's arm of compassion was wrapped around me through his children, through Brother Frank Tamil. And when he held me and I felt the presence of God sweep over me, I realized that my question had been answered. From that, of course, from that day on, I gave my heart to God over a few-week period and then ended up in Bible college and then my whole life had changed from one direction to another, a life-defining moment. What would have happened if there would have been no preparation prior to that? What if my parents had never really even taken me to church? Would have I had the same inkling to ask the question that I did? Every one of us have had life-defining moments, but every one of us, too, will continue to have decisions that come into our life unexpectedly that we must be prepared to follow and answer. I want to talk to you a little bit. I'll give you an example. In Egypt, we find Israel as slaves to the Egyptians. It seems like everything is completely lost. Everything was hopeless. All the promises that they lived on were in the past had seemed to grow uh, shadow, overshadowed by the calamity and the, and the persecution and the hard life as a slave in Egypt. Pharaoh, of course, as the, the world does, tries to eliminate the population by destroying the children. It was population control. And so it was that he ordered all of the uh, women that were pregnant to kill the male children. And in this particular day, it was Moses' mother. I'm going to say it was Zipporah. I may be wrong. That's a name that comes to my mind. Took her child and put him in a bassinet and was able to seal it enough that it would float upon the water in the Nile. And as Pharaoh's daughter walked along the Nile one day, in a life-defining moment, she happened to look at this little bassinet that carried this little child, and she took it to the shore, and her heart was opened, and she fell in love with this Hebrew child, and took it into the palace, and Moses' life was completely changed. From a, a child that should have died in the Nile, should have been destroyed at birth, now was brought into the palace of a, a pharaoh, one of the most powerful men in the earth, and he was raised there. That was not his decision as it was Pharaoh's daughter's decision. Now, Moses lived in the palace to roughly, for rough, roughly about 40 years. And uh, he realized his heritage. I'm not sure how he, he was aware of his family, 
But somehow there must have been some connection, and he knew he was a Hebrew. And as it was, after nearly 40 years, something happened that changed his entire life and changed the whole destiny and direction of a nation. It was a decision that he made on the spur of a moment that changed all of Israel's history. Exodus, the second chapter, says, And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together, and he said to them that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killed the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. One decision He saw the Egyptian persecuting one of his brethren and he made a decision to kill the Egyptian. It wasn't something that he thought about prior to that day. It was just something that he moved on and it happened. And he went from notoriety, he went from extreme wealth to a place of obscurity and poverty. He had no idea the ramifications of that single decision. I'm sure that Moses had felt the burden of his people. I believe that's why he was out there. He he wanted to be near them. He identified with them. But I wonder, after that day, he wondered what would have happened if he had did things differently. You know, those life-defining moments that we'll all face, they, they come so quickly, and they go so quickly. Oftentimes, God leads us to a place where we make a decision, and it's a snap decision. But unless you are prepared, unless you're prayed up, and you've been in contact with God, you may make the wrong decision. Here's a quote from, I don't quote a lot of senators. I I can't find a lot of good things coming from Washington at all, but I kind of like this quote. Dan Kudis, Senator Dan Kudis, and he says this, Character cannot be summoned at the moment of crisis when it's squandered by years of compromise and rationalization. In other words, character cannot be summoned up at the moment if it's been abused and never built up in the past. Your character is something that you develop. It's like faith. Faith isn't something that all of a sudden pops into your life one day. Some people say, Lord, give me faith, and they think it's going to be like a UPS package dropped off at their door. Faith is built through experience. Faith is built through trust. Faith is built through by doing those things that God has commanded. And eventually, you begin to see how God responds, and you begin to operate solely by faith. Faith is the substance of things not seen. It's the evidence of things hoped for. The testing ground for the heroic. And everybody, I know, I have a vivid imagination. I sometimes, in my imagination, become the hero of a situation. You ever do that? I could just see me jumping into the water and saving a drowning child. I could see myself as Superman and flying to the 20th floor of a burning building. Because 
That would be a heroic action. And I know, you can look at me strangely, but I know all of us want to be in a situation where we show our faith through an action of bravery. But your bravery is developed on the battlegrounds of the mundane. Your daily existence, the days that you live in when nothing seems to be happening, when you're wondering if the weather's ever going to change, it's just been always the same. Those are the days where you begin to develop the character so when the moment of trial comes, you might be successful. In the days that you think nothing is happening, those are the days of preparation. Look at, look at Moses. The second 40-year period of his life. 40 years, those were the first 40 years, probably by the world's eyes would have been wonderful eyes. He, years, he had the best of clothing, he had the best of education, he had everything that he needed, all of his needs were supplied, People respected him. But the next 40 years in his life were void of anything that probably was good. Well, he got married during the second 40-year period. He had children. But we don't see any activity in Moses' life. All we know about the second 40-year period of Moses' life is that he tended sheep. And you know where the Bible says he tended sheep? On the backside of the desert. What does that mean? The backside of the desert. Well, that's the side of the desert where nobody goes. So 40 years of nothing. Well, why would God choose to waste 40 years of a man's life? Why couldn't God take Moses at 40 and start using him in the delivering of his people instead of waiting till the he's 80 years old. God wasn't wasting those 40 years. Those 40 years in the wilderness were just as important to Moses as those three and a half years that Saul spent in the desert before he came out and preached. Did you realize that? When Saul was converted... He didn't start preaching right away. The Bible says he went out into the desert, and in the desert, just like Moses, God was able to speak to him and plant in him the character that he needed to be successful in the ministry that he was called to perform. We would look at that and say, well, that seemed like wasted years. Here's another little quote that I liked. It has been said that the only preparation for that one profound decision which can change a life is those hundreds of half-conscious, self-defining, seemingly insignificant decisions that you made in private. All those little decisions that seem so insignificant. Will I get up and pray this morning? Will I maintain my integrity when no one's looking? Will I go out of the way and help someone? A simple one. This is, so, this is so base. Will I go out and help that man across the street that's struggling? Will I, will I help this individual? Will I do these things? Those are the mundane things that go unnoticed that actually develop a character in you that will shine forth in the moment that it's most noticed by the world. And Moses came out of the wilderness at the end of 40 years. And we find him appearing at the burning bush. And it says that Moses saw a bush that was on fire but was not consumed. And his interest was piqued and he came aside to see the bush. Now again, sometimes in the scripture, we're left up in our own imagination to figure out what he's thinking. I think in the wilderness, Moses sought God and developed his relationship with God before he ever went to Egypt again. It was in the wilderness where he prayed. 
It was in the wilderness as he led the sheep, just like David. He talked to God, and he looked to God every day. It was where his character was born. So when he saw the burning bush, it wasn't just the activity of fire in a bush that attracted him. It was, is this something that God wants me to see? And he was drawn to the bush. And when he came under the bush, when the Lord saw that he turned aside, he turned aside and came to the bush. He said, take off your shoes for the area on which you stand is holy ground. And that was another life-defining moment in Moses' life when he came to the bush because that's the first time in 80 years that we have any evidence that God ever spoke audibly to Moses. We have no other evidence than that. We can only assume that the character that was built in Moses happened every day for 40 years till one day God spoke to him and commissioned him to go forth and deliver his people. Those 40 years of mundane activity, and I want you to think about this, because so many people say, you know, Pastor, I, don't, I can't say in my life that I've ever did anything that's really spiritually notable. Here I am, I'm 55 years old, and I'm being, that's not me because I'm slightly older than that. Here I've been living all these years, and I can't say anything notably has happened in my life that's been noteworthy. I want to tell you that you were brought to this earth for a purpose. When God brought you into the womb of your mother, and that seed was planted, and he invested in you the spirit of life, he expected a dividend. He gave you a talent. He gave you a gift. And he commissioned you to go forth and wait and prepare for the life-defining moment that you would receive. Moses was 80 years old when it came. But the, the important thing of what I'm saying tonight is that you must be ready when it arrives. So 40 years of nothing, and then 40 years, get this, no miracles in the first 40. No miracles that I'm aware of in the second 40. What? Wow, the last 40? <laughs> the 10 plagues that came against uh, Pharaoh, the Red Sea parting, a pillar of fire at night, a cloud during the day, manna in the wilderness, a rock that gives enough water to, to water millions of people and all the livestock, and then to have the rock follow them for 40 years wherever they went. Wow, this was super stuff. But it happened in the last 40-year period of his life. Everything was in preparation for those last 40 years. God has called you for a purpose. We all have a reason to exist. If you did not have one, you would not be here. I look at how some people lost their life to finding a moment. Look at the man named Saul in the Old Testament. Very humble guy. At this time in history, Israel's clamoring for a king because they want to be just like everybody else. They want to have a king just like all the other nations in the world have a king. And, and there was a little bit of disgust in God's heart. And I remember the conversation between Samuel and God about a king. And eventually God said, well, I'll give them a king. And he looked down and he saw a man named Saul. Can anybody tell me, and don't be afraid to say it, what was the initial trait that God saw in Saul, that God saw in Saul, that he admired? What was it 
that God saw in him, not just his size, he was taller, head and shoulders taller than any other Hebrew, but what was it that attracted God to Saul? Huh? Exactly. His humility. When he called for Saul, where was Saul? He was hiding behind the stuff. Certainly God doesn't want me. I'm just, I'm so humble. But it was a defining moment in his life when he was called forth from obscurity and he obeyed God and God gave him authority and he gave him a kingship under him. But there was another life-defining moment in Saul's life when everything, when he made a decision that changed the whole course of the rest of his life. Can anybody tell me what that second life decision was that changed Saul's whole life? What, what did Saul do that changed the direction that he was heading in? What did he do? Huh? Yep, exactly. It was a decision. He did not, he did not kill the entire enemy. He allowed the, God's enemies when he was commanded to kill all the sheep and all the livestock and kill everything. He listened. The Bible says he listened to the people. Now, see, that's, that's one of the things, if he would have learned to listen to God and not be overridden by public opinion, when the life-defining moment came in his life, he would have not have made the wrong decision. That's why when we're walking in the daily moments of our life, that we have to live that life of integrity, building up our faith for what could be a moment that changes not only our destiny, but people that are around us. Now, I, I know that Christ was tempted in every manner like as we are tempted, but without sin. But I, I wondered about if Christ ever had a life-defining moment. Well, we know he, the, the moment was he was born to be a king. He was the king of kings. He was God manifest in the flesh. But can I point to a place in his life where he made a decision, and it was recorded in, I believe, all four Gospels. No, three Gospels. I don't think it was recorded in the book of Mark. Where he made a decision that changed the destiny of all mankind. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He went aside to pray and he wanted the disciples to come and pray because he realized that not only in his life was there going to be a moment where he was going to make a decision, but there was going to be a moment in his disciples' lives where they would be asked to make a decision as well. And he said, couldn't you not come and pray with me for just a little while? Don't you realize that there's coming a moment in just a few minutes, in just an hour, my friends, where you're going to have to make a decision on where you stand? So it says Jesus went away and he knelt and he prayed and he sweat as it were great drops of blood and he said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, but thine be done. It was a life-defining moment where the flesh submitted to the Spirit and the flesh went to the cross. It was a beautiful word picture. God was not only Spirit, but he was man. As man, he died, but as a Spirit, he could resurrect the body. But that when Jesus prayed, for instance, it wasn't that he was weak, it was his flesh submitting to God in prayer. All flesh shall come before the Lord in prayer. And as he told John when he was asking, John said, why should I baptize you? He said, baptize me so it fulfills all righteousness. So a life-defining moment before the cross 
would have been when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he wrestled with his own flesh so that when the decision came, when Judas led the soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane, he could say, it's me, I'm the one you're looking for. Knowing that when he did that, he would be, by the next evening, dead. He would have suffered a beating, a terrible beating, and a crucifixion. And, but his death changed the whole course of not only the Old Testament world, but the future world. That moment when he decided the flesh submitted to the spirit, it changed your destiny. It changed my destiny. And anyone's destiny that would come to God and serve him with a faithful heart. I remember a man in this church. Remember, remember Brother Unz? He was a great guy. You got, some of you never had a chance to meet him. Sister Mary Unz's husband. Well, I had the opportunity to get to know them. We were teaching Brother, Brother Unz a Bible study. He was just a great guy. We would go over to their home in Oconomowoc. But I remember the day that, almost the exact day when he was diagnosed with cancer. And the man was amazing. His faith was amazing. And I watched him go through that trial, which would eventually take his life. And I remember the, the tears, and I remember the struggles what, what good could ever come out of such a bad situation? But I know a man that it left a lasting impact because I watched Brother Unz go through the struggle and not only did he maintain his integrity, but he praised his way through that trial. Near the end of his life, for example, those of you that went to visit him at Waukesha Memorial Hospital, you, could, you would walk into the cancer unit, which would have been right by the main lobby, and you could hear him praising God in his room. I remember oftentimes walking down the hallway, and I'd hear Brother Unz, and here the man is going through uh, the struggle that will eventually take his life, and he maintains his integrity to the very end by worshiping and trusting God. Did that happen did he have that power just overnight? That, that it, the power came to overcome the obstacle through the days, those mundane days when he walked with God and he was faithful to God. So my point in that is not just trying to elevate him, is people, even when they do not understand why God does what he's doing in their life, do not realize the number of people that they're affecting through their struggle. The number of nurses, the number of staff in the hospital, the people that provided the chemotherapy, they saw someone whose faith was such that even facing death, he could stand up and, and honor God. People like Job, who lost his family, he lost his health, lost his wealth, lost his friends, lost his wife, that would say, yea, though God destroy me, yet will I praise him. Yea, though skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh will I see God. That man's life, even the struggle of his life, has lasted for thousands of years. The book of Job was probably written before most of the Old Testament. That story was there. And all these years later, I've never met Job, but I know him through his suffering. Because he had lived... Now, before it all happened, remember what was happening in Job's life? It says he prayed to God always. He prayed for his children. He made sacrifices for his children. And matter of fact, 
God was proud of the man. He says, looked at, said to Satan, look at my servant Job, how he serves me with his entire house. But God brought him to a life-defining moment. Someone that God loved and showed off to Satan as his own trophy, his own prize in life, one that he loved, he allowed to suffer so that that life could affect the lives of people that live thousands of years later. So you don't know what your life-defining moment is. It could be leading a nation out of bondage, but it could also be how you handle the trials and tribulations and the struggles that you face in your daily mundane life. And I, I think about scriptures like this one. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Deuteronomy 33, 27, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the, are the everlasting arms. Psalms 9, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. He's a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 16, I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though the army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, I will be confident. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. The scripture makes it clear that a life of tribulation is sustained by the mighty, powerful hand of God in a person's life through the decisions that he chooses to make. I think God sees, uh, people see the glory of God not so much through how you perform some of the things that you perform in a church service as much as they see you, your faithfulness in the time of struggle. I know that's true because when Paul was writing, he's speaking to the Hebrews and he says in the 11th chapter, and what, shall, what more shall I say? I don't have the time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. How about David? How about Samuel and the prophets? Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received, their, received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith. He says that after saying all that, he stops and says these people are commended for their faith, yet not one of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. What, what is Paul trying to express 
Take all the multitudes of the people. He says, there's so many I could not even mention them. It's, it's called the, the congregation of the faithful. How they were commended for their faithfulness in the life-defining moments that they faced in their tribulation, showing that God was faithful. And yet, unlike us who have received the promise, they never did. If God, if, if they were able to do what they did without the Spirit of God dwelling in them as it does in the church, as we are filled with the Spirit, how could we ever stand in their presence and be justified if we failed? God is my strength. He's my strong tower. He's my fortress. I cannot through him fail. So I guess tonight I'm going to probably stop there, but I, th I think you get the gist of what I'm trying to say. It's sort of like all of us have had those moments and thank God you wouldn't be here if you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have made the decision that you did. You wouldn't have been here if you wouldn't have made a life-defining decision. But I'm trying to tell you that you cannot judge your success by your own personal view from the window that you're looking from. Let me say that more clearly. Other people see you differently than you see yourself. We are living epistles, the Bible says, read of all men. What you may think is a quiet day on earth, others are seeing in you a faithfulness that's being developed so that when the storm comes, you become a pillar of strength and a, a place or a haven for them to come to for safety. So tomorrow might be the day. Might be a day when God asks you to change direction. Will you make the right decision if you're not making preparation for that day today? Let's stand together tonight. I, I remember uh, some years ago, it was 1977, and um, Rick was here in 1977 in the old church. Um, it's funny how our life separated. When he started the work here in Economowoc, I believe that was about 1975. I think it was the same year, was it 75? I think it was at the same time. It was the same time that I went up to St. Paul. He started to work in Oconomowoc, and I went to school. And uh, I remembered my second year, I, I came home, and Rick, I was sort of envious of him. Here the church in Oconomowoc, I remember I'd come back in the summers. They were meeting in a, a garage at that time, I believe, over on the lake. And there were probably 25 or 30 people. And it seemed like things were going so well. And I contemplated, boy, I just can't, I, I got to quit school. Uh, this is, I feel like I'm going nowhere. Here's, uh, I've got to go back for another year. This has been two, no one going back for three. And I told Rick, I said, you know, Rick, I, I think I'm, I'm going to quit. I think I'm not going to go back. And I'll never forget him. That would have been a life-defining moment in my life. And I remember him taking me aside and he says, you're going back. You're going back and you're going to finish. He could have said, no, I want you to stay here and help me. And then he did something. We had an old, remember those, we had eight tracks at that time again. Old eight tracks. And he gave me... Um, an eight-track 
And he said, now, I marked on the label here the song that I want you to listen to when you feel like you're, you want to quit. And I remember this all, all these years later. I remember the story. He probably won't. But it was by Lanny Wolf, and the name of the song was Someone's Praying for You. And he says, whenever you feel like quitting, I want you to remember that back home there are people that are lifting you up in prayer. Now, what did that mean to me? Did it mean that, that I feel good, that, that they were praying? I realized that people were investing in me through their prayer. In other words, I could envision people on their knees praying for me. Remember the song, How It Goes, Have the Clouds Round You Gathered in the Midst of a Storm? Does any remember, do you remember that song? Have the clouds round you gathered in the midst of a storm. Is your ship tossed and battered? Are you weary and worn? Don't lose hope. Someone's praying for you this very day and peace be still he's already on his way so every time I listen to that song I realize these people are supporting me they're rooting for me so the importance of the body here of this church is not only to to pray for you but to push you on in prayer so when people are praying for you you don't want to let them down and of course I made it and I, I came back, but what would have happened to my life if I'd have never completed what I started? I might have developed a pattern. So tonight I encourage you to be faithful to God and realize that even in the mundane times of your life when you don't feel anything is taking place, that's probably where you're experience the, experiencing the greatest growth in your life. So that when your moment comes, you make the right decision. This altar is open if you want to come and pray. Uh, thanks for being so attentive tonight. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at AbundantLifeChurch.org.